Kelly. Muggery. Molly. Backcumber. Backcumber player. Boy. <laughs> Watch out, it's only Maureen. Pull your neck in. Much improved. Now. Oye, oye. Welcome, all ye gorgeous Ben Georgians, ye backscuttlers, ye muff divers, ye fingersmiths. Welcome to Ducky's Queer History Club Princess Podcast. What? Wait, 18th century podcast? We're here, we're princesses, and we're going to the museum. I'm EJ. I'm here with Sed. And my good friend Serge, both precious princesses themselves, which is quite hard to say. I'd like, you know, if you'd like to have a go at it, precious princesses. Serge, don't, yes. don't rush in to say hello, Zed. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, EJ. Sorry. Sorry. Hello, princesses. Hi, Serge. Do you know what I mean? Hello. <laughs> Where's the love and the inspiration? <laughs> Sergi, thank you for coming in with us today. I mm-hmm. know that you've been around the trans history block yourself. Yeah. You've made a bit of your own trans history. You've yes. left a bit of a legacy. Tell yes. us a bit about it. Parts left in museums. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose the Museum of Transology would have been a, a good place in terms of me poking my uh, interested and curious nose in and offering things for the collection. I suppose that's when it started. Tell us what you put in there. Well, um, I put in a knitted moorhen packer. So uh, that was a very discreet little um, knitted moorhen. Yeah, that was uh, (laughs) great. So if it fell on the floor, so what? You know, it it was fine. Um, but then I also put in a body cast made by my sculptor friend um, Svar of a very, very strange piece of body modification surgery that was going wrong that no one would have believed it existed. So we did a body cast. And your, own, it was called... your own surge, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And it was, um, it was phalloplasty version one and two, and it was called Monster. And before it was going to be cut off and disposed of, we decided to cast it. And so that was what I offered to the Museum of Transology, along with Knitted Moorhen and a copy of There Is No Word For It. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got started, really, in, yeah. in terms of this museum stuff. And those, those objects are now saved in the Museum of Transology, along with an object of yours as well, right, Zed? There is an object of mine in there, yes. There is, there is a, a giant bikini top from uh, when I had boobs. Oh, well, that's okay because my boobs are in there. So here we are. It's all come full circle. We could probably actually put together a whole human being. <laughs> I think we once seen, never forgotten these combinations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein, eat your heart out. Sergi, you've been on, I think, all of the trips with us that we've gone on as part of the Princess Project behind the scenes, looking into queer and trans history in the past. I was really interested. I know you were very passionate about about a particular trip that we did, and it's something that you've then talked about when we've done the Southeast tour 
along the coast of the Queer History Clubs. So I would love you to share that with us. What, what was it that you loved so much? Yes. Um, I suppose I didn't even really know what we were going to see that day. I mean, I knew that the Shunga exhibition was on, but I didn't really know we were going to go into the sort of wooden back rooms with all the big old stuff and actually see Hokusai erotica. I didn't know that was coming. And so in a way, I was not fully prepared for my mind to be blown so much um, in that dusty space where you're supposed to be quiet and, you know, hand over your pens and have a pencil and white (laughs) gloves. I didn't know we were going to see what we were going to see, which was fantastic creature erotica, um, strap-ons, gay sex, lesbian sex. You know, I just didn't know we were going for that. So I was quite unprepared. And I'm a sex therapist, so I don't know what it was like for other people. (laughs) (laughs) What did you find most astonishing about it? Well, I think it was really our collective gaze that we weren't on our own looking at this in a in a sort of big expensive book. We were actually there in front of works that was that had been put aside for us to see on our visit and I just didn't know what was coming next, but then I didn't know that my favorite favorite work uh of Hokusai was there for, and I was going to see it and going to be there doing like selfies in the museum with my favorite print with us lot there. It was just like this amazing, amazing moment and completely unforgettable really. And I remember Zed and, and doing photos of us with our phones <laughs> and the artwork. It was just like, it was amazing. Amazing. There's, there's yeah. something as well, I think for me anyway, about, about kind of it not being behind glass. Cause I've seen that, I've seen that work before, but it was behind glass and actually you can, you can kind of smell the paper. You can, you, you know, you can get so close to it um, that it just, it does feel really magical. That's spoken like such a graphic designer. <laughs> you can smell the paper. Oh, come on. You're a secret no, but I know paper what sniffer you mean. too. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sniffing more than paper, love. Yep. <laughs> I, tell, tell everyone about this print that you adored. Do you want to describe it? Yeah. Sarah? So The image. Yeah. So it is of a, um, a, a, a Japanese woman in uh, her um, full ecstatic pleasure um, with a very, very large octopus and a little octopus. And so it is um, um, an, an image uh, where, um, yes, female pleasure is absolutely centred and it is this amazing ecstatic scene of her head thrown back and her body given up to her creature partners. And it's just absolutely mind-blowingly interesting and wonderful. And um, so, yeah, there's various titles, as we know, of, of the work. And there's also presumably different interpretations of it but I think you just got to look and use your eyes you can see she's having a great time with her octopuses and do you find that inherently queer I do I think there's something about um queering um erotica that is useful that is freeing um 
and something about um i know that we were joking about our our sort of um our body parts in the museum but there's something about if we can have erotica that is beyond the body that is beyond gender that is creature that is nature that is water um that is uh, i don't know there's something there that is very it feels very queer to me um and freeing and there's there's something about um this is not uh male female this is you know this is one person's pleasure and whether it's imagination or summoning up the octopus that she knows which I you know I just don't know it doesn't matter it's just really really fantastic and um so yeah there's something about tentacle porn about creature life there's something yeah I think there is something transy queer but also it's it's kind of women having pleasure without cis dick like when it comes yeah. down to the kind of simplest form isn't it without cis dude dick mm. so yeah yes that is quite queer so it's feminist docuports exactly porn. amazing amazing <laughs> <laughs> i was i was really struck Serge. i too was overwhelmed i found the fact that we were seeing objects that are so distinctly precious, you know, that's a word that can be debated in, in all sorts of different ways. But we really did, we walked into the room and the curators behind the scenes had got out, I remember the long, long, long scroll. And on one end of the scroll was the front of the theatre, of the Kabuki theatre. And it kind of went down and broke down the fourth wall, didn't it? And then the third and the second. And it went right through to the back of the theatre where the young Japanese female impersonating wakashu performer was having sex with an older kabuki performer. And it felt like we were physically doing the journey from going through the museum and seeing things in the same way that we were breaking down all these walls that traditionally had left us out historically from accessing these kind of informations and having these kind of conversations because it's not like the curators who are experts in Japanese sex art are, st are sitting around talking about the queer potentiality and the trans potentiality of the images as freeing and liberating, are they? These are conversations that I think are unique to us going in as a bunch of queers and so in a way, I think there's something new and exciting about the interpretation that was happening through our excitement of being there all together with the objects and being able to share these moments of, you know, about the objects with each other as well. And I couldn't but help also imagine if we were there in that in London, somehow getting uh, roughly drawn, roughly printed copies of prints that were popular you know would we have seen some of this uh th these works would we have um you know with with having you know the excitement of of a, a new print uh or a new form of erotica would we have seen these so i i leapt with that in terms of thinking what if i had been you know an 18th century londoner that had glimpsed uh you know uh, a badly printed copy of a hokusai or something like that so i also i also went there about where where could we have seen these would we have seen these is that is that when you started rubbing your britches there's 
Surge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His octopus. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I think it, I, it was an absolutely fascinating trip and, and for me it's going to stay in my memory for a long time uh, because I, I guess it just it holds a significance for us all and it's something that we can hold on to and remember, but it felt radical in the way it was disrupting the museum. For me, we weren't being polite about it. We were thrilled to pieces. We were all squealing. You know, this is not how you behave <laughs> in an archive at the British Museum in front of the head of curation of Japanese and Asian studies. But we did. And so that, for me, felt very liberating and that the museum was getting something out of us being there as well as us getting something from the museum. We're going to keep going on these tours around the South Coast, and you're going to keep talking about your piece by Hokusai that you love so much, Serge. Mm. And we're going to do this in the Princess Promenade as well, mm. you know, have an opportunity to share these images. And, of course, there's there's glimpses of it in the Wank Mag too. So we will make sure that everyone also who's listening gets access to sharing this this these moments of enlightenment, if you like. Um, I want to thank you very much for being part of the project, Serge. It's it's been a really um, a moment of bonding with between you and me. I think definitely. Um, that's yeah. really yeah, and that's that's also something that's exciting that's come out of the project, isn't it? And there's something about um, I think over these 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 last years as well in terms of really really valuing this because of a lot of us working at home online not going to many many places together so this collective group uh viewing and um uncovering and working things out it's been really really it's felt felt really really radical rather than individual viewing yeah, who knew museums could be radical? Just took a <laughs> bunch of queers, eh? <laughs> Thanks, lovely mm. Serge. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. A pleasure. They see my love and me abroad and take me for her sister. But we enjoy the game of flats just like our chum and Lister. Well, it's actually interesting that we've we've already started talking about wank mags today. It kind of sets the tone. I'm here with Tim, um, who we visited at the British Museum on one of our research princess trips. We were looking at Japanese Shunga. Before I go on, I should introduce you, Tim. You've had a very prestigious career. You've focused on the study of Japanese culture. You were curator of Japanese collections at the British Museum from 1988 to 2019. You're now an honorary research fellow in the Department of Asia. So I feel like I'm in, in, in the hands of a complete expertise, obviously. And most importantly, you've written extensively on Shunga and you've studied it very closely including and I've got my bible here oh, including the mm. the Shunga uh, sex and pleasure in Japanese art that you co-edited which was seminal and that fed into the British Museum's exhibition on Shunga didn't it indeed it, it was really the book of the exhibition shall we start at the beginning and at least mm. and let people know give give some context about shall we 
shall we describe what Shungar is and what's going on in Japan at the time when this when this print culture is flourishing? Mm. Um, I think when talking about Shungar, I'd like to use the term sex art. This is something we've come to over quite a long period. We didn't highlight it particularly in the exhibition, but um, I don't like using the word erotic because it's a bit too coy and different people find different things erotic. Um, but, you know, is Shunga porno is a very interesting debate. Um, and I think one of the really important characteristics of Shunga is it's very explicit and it's very beautiful at the same time. And it's incredibly well crafted. And that's not necessarily an equation that we're used to, is it? And I think that, um, you know, pornography as a kind of legal category in the middle of the 19th century almost had to be invented so that pictures of people having sex or sculptures of people having sex wouldn't stray into art. Um, but uh, as, I, as I hope we'll chat now, um, I think the situation in Japan was very different. Yes, why don't you tell us about what was going on in Japan? The borders were still closed at this stage, so there's there's a very uh, would it be fair to say? I I think the word insular would be too wrong, isn't it? There's there's an a, an introspection with with the culture that's fostering very specific Japanese style and 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 cultural traits, right? Yeah, it's it's a very hot house culture. Um, and people used to use the word closed country, but um, there's been a kind of corrective to that over the last few decades. And, and people talk now much more in terms of very carefully regulated contacts with the outside world. And, and the regime in Japan at this time, the regime of the samurai uh, called the shogun, you know, with the shogun at its top, uh, it endures for more than 250 years uh, with Japan largely at peace, but everything is organized to try and maintain the control, the control of the samurai aristocracy over pretty much everything that happens within, within Japan. Um, so Japanese people are not allowed to travel abroad, which is quite significant. Um, and anything that comes into Japan is very carefully regulated, as I said. And um, in practice, there are interstate relations between Japan and Korea, and the Koreans actually were quite shocked by Japanese sexual customs. Um, and also Japan and what's now Okinawa, the Ryukyu Kingdom, halfway to Taiwan. So those two were the only official um, relationships with the outside world. And then there was very important trading mercantile relationship with China. No, no intergovernment relations at all, but um, dozens of Chinese merchant ships arriving in Japan every year in the very far west uh, in Nagasaki. And then a much, much smaller number, probably only one or two ships a year from Holland, ultimately, via the, the, the Dutch East India Company in, in um, Southeast Asia. Um, so very carefully regulated contacts, but very significant ones. I mean, both the Dutch and the Chinese connection uh, were, were crucial. Well, so how is it that you can have s such a regulated you know the borders are regulated the trade is regulated the 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 hierarchy of power within the country is regulated so it feels like there's all these regulations and yet you've got this flourishing radical sex print culture it's very much a question of public 
um, obeying the rules and much more freedom in the private realm. Um, and this becomes a real feature of, of the Japanese cities at this time, uh, principally Edo, what's now Tokyo. The, the Japanese regime uh, encouraged people to be educated. So also um, in terms of levels of literacy, uh, Japan may well have been ahead of, of the Western European nations uh, at this time. Uh, and it's an incredibly commercial consumer culture. You know, this is bringing us slowly towards uh, a kind of the culture of commercial sex uh, and the, sh the shunga, the, the uh, floating world prints and paintings that show us something of that world. So we're talking about kind of print specifically here, but obviously that mm. reflects what's happening in the society. Mm. And when we were, when I was kind of looking up some stuff that I was quite surprised by, by like the samurai relationships with Wakashu and things like that, that mm. I had never, you know, mm. I'd never experienced. And it's not something mm. that I think is talked about very much. Mm. Um, so I'm going to be talking in generalizations, but if you, if you talk to, about attitudes towards sex and sexuality in general, um, I think it is very significant in Japan that there is not really such a sense of sin or shame uh, in, in, in a religious uh, sense as you would find in contemporary Europe. Uh, in many ways, quite the contrary, um, there's the native religion of Japan, Shinto, which is very important in people's lives. They're often Buddhists as well and Confucians, but Shinto is kind of at the core of, of Japanese identity. And the creation myths of Japan are all based on sex. Uh, and sex is seen as something positive. Procreation is seen as something positive. Pleasure, sexual pleasure, is seen as something positive. And I think a lot of those attitudes uh, naturally flow into uh, shunga, these, this sex art. Um, the, the things we used in the exhibition and the things you saw in the study room were primarily uh, directed towards a more popular audience. Japan stratified, so you've got the samurai at the top. Uh, and in ideological terms, you've got the merchants at the bottom. But actually what is happening in the Edo period is the samurai are losing control of the money economy. And the money economy is steadily flowing towards the merchant class. So although they have no political power whatsoever, they have increasing financial clout. And this is a steady process which continues. So we're talking about a mixture of samurai and urban values and because it's become such an urbanized society, those values are kind of blending, even though society itself continues to be rigid right up until the middle of the 19th century. The samurai, you know, have complete authority in political terms. But culturally and in terms of value system, there's a lot of influence coming from the bottom upwards, <laughs> if I can put it that way. So let's give an example. Um, you know, one of the high points of urban culture in Edo is located in time around 1700. Um, and the calendar is divided into these eras of uh, a dozen or so, sometimes 20 years. And it's the Genroku era, 1688 to 1704, which is regarded as a kind of early high point of urban culture. Uh, and you get the establishment of the so-called pleasure quarters, um, brothel districts, and you also have um, a flourishing of kabuki, this popular theatre, which is, you know, where a lot of gender fluidity is explored in an amazing way. 
in in performance, um, uh, both in terms of the actors themselves, but also in terms of the scenarios that they set up in the plays and the appearance the appearance of the um, female role specialists. So uh, it, it is a very rich picture, and all as I said earlier. On the surface, Shunga, the sex picture, sex art, is supposed to be illegal. In 1722, there were some laws passed which specifically ban it. Uh, and that actually endures for about 20 years. But then it bounces back stronger than ever. And you have this pattern of occasional periods, brief periods of government crackdown. And it's not just crackdown on sex and sexual customs, it's a crackdown on all manifestations of popular culture. The samurai are trying to reassert their authority, but actually, ultimately, they can't because the money is all flowing out of their pockets uh, and, and towards the merchants. So it's, it's, it's notionally illegal, but for most of the Edo period, it's not only tolerated, but everybody really enjoys it. And, and you can... You can make historical arguments for uh, elite use of Shunga. You can also make arguments. They're a little more oblique, but you can make it for female readership and female use of Shunga. Um, so, <laughs> so much in Japan, what appears very formal on the surface is actually not quite so formal at all uh, when you get down to the nitty-gritty and to the private, the private realm. Because from from the Shunga we saw, there is something mm. for everyone, really. Mm. I mean, it mm. covers a lot of bases, doesn't it? Mm. Um, not so much uh, as we talked about and as you saw, girl-girl uh, action um, in, in the exhibition and for the project. Uh, we followed a rather neutral terminology of male-male sex. Um, and, and in that, we were following a, a very smart... U.S. historian of, of queer culture, Greg Flugfelder, who was writing in the 90s. Uh, and really to be a little overcautious, maybe, but avoid anachronistic terms taken from our own times. We just we just talked about male-male sex, because I'm sure we're going to go on now and talk about who the Wakashu were, what they got up to, uh, and how that is rather different from, you know, how gender and sexuality has been, you know, uh, defined in the West. That that would be really helpful because it feels to me that potentially being cautious with the term male on male detracts from the gender performativity that was also that also appears time and time again. And you know, as as someone who's trans, I find that absolutely deeply deeply fascinating it, it it screams sort of you know signifier 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 <laughs> you know so maybe you could tell us a bit about about the wakashu wakashu literally means a youth that's really all it means but the implication is very much a beautiful youth a youth who is seen in himself but also from the way he behaves the way he dresses uh, to be attractive uh, and a potential uh, sexual partner. Now, sorry, but I'm going to have to just very quickly give you three kinds of wakashu. Um, and and here, here I'm, I'm very much following the recent work of uh, our colleagues in Toronto, 
who did the exhibition uh, about the third gender. They, they coined this term, the third gender question mark, which might apply to wakashu. Um, there's the, the word that simply means a young man, adolescent. And it, it's the period between puberty and when a young man proceeds into full adulthood. And there's a little ceremony where they cut off, they shave off his forelock, his sexy cowlick. Uh, and that, that period is somewhat elastic, depending on the individual, depending on the circumstances, depending on the period. But I mean, we're talking basically about teens. So from early teens, when somebody passes through puberty, through maybe around 20, uh, when they formally become an adult with the full responsibilities of, of adult society. Um, so that's the first kind of, of wakashu. The second wakashu is very much in the samurai tradition. Uh, and there is this uh, samurai tradition of, of manly love, if you want to call it that, uh, where typically there is a slightly um, a slight age gap between the two uh, lovers. Uh, and the older one is called the ninja, uh, and sometimes characterized as an older brother. Uh, and he has a relationship, frequently sexual, with, with a younger man um, who is the wakashu. Uh, and that can continue for a certain amount of period. But ultimately, first the senior guy, the ninja, will grow out of it. And then the younger man will grow out of it. That's the assumption. That's the way society expects. It's a phase. But it's it's you know it's accepted as a phase and, and nobody nobody really bats an eyelid and very much in the context of samurai high culture while while um, young kabuki actors were in training and particularly if if they were tending towards the female roles there was the expectation there was the custom that they would work as sex workers that they would um, you know provide sexual services to people who potentially would be their patrons uh, in the course of their career. Uh, and there were spe specific brothels, which were um, where uh, generally teenage, early 20s lads were working as uh, sex workers. And they were tended to be clustered near the Kabuki theatres in the tea house areas around the Kabuki theatres, which is different from the other pleasure quarters, particularly Yoshiwara, where it was mainly biological women who were in much larger numbers indentured for a period of 10 years generally uh, and expected to pay sexual favors to to customers who could pay but um you know the more we explore these nuances um the more we realize just how complicated the performance of sexual identity if you want to regard it in those terms was in uh, early modern japan but what what i what i was kind of fascinated by with, with the wakashu who were um, having relationships with samurai was that they were considered a third gender. They kind of changed gender for a period of their time. And it's that question about was that was that anything to do with gender or was it to do with kind of gay sex shame? I don't think there is a, a, a tortured gay sex shame in Japan in, in the medieval period and early modern period. And it's not just the samurai, it's also the monastic context, context where um, Buddhist priests were specifically forbidden from having sex with women, women so they um, tended to 
uh, form relationships with the young acolytes. Again, it's a age imbalance and it's a power imbalance, but it's accepted. And there is, you know, tenderness and reciprocity uh, on, on, on both sides. Uh, and I think there's also an as there is an aspect to the samurai um, relationships with younger men, which is somewhat anti-woman, um, because they wanted they they felt I'm, I'm generalizing massively here, and <laughs> you just have to uh, test what I say uh, from other people or what you read. But um, I th there was a sense that having sex with women kind of polluted the martial vigor or sapped the martial vigor uh, of samurai. Um, and somehow having, having sexual relations with a lad was less, uh, less um, detracted less from, from their martial valor. Um, and there are also you know, young samurai men who are in the same social environment. During the civil wars, they're in the same battle environment as the mature fighting samurai. Now, that world of fighting and battles disappears in the Edo period. You've got this irony of the samurai constantly training in military arts. But somebody once said it's like training for a race you hope you're never going to run because their political system was all designed to ensure that there was no uh, power struggle. There was no power. Uh, uh, nobody, nobody tried to usurp the authority of the ruling Tokugawa family. And it was incredibly successful. It, it um, sus was sustained for 250 years at a time when Europe was busy, you know, in the Thirty Years' War and all the rest of it, murdering each other like crazy in the name of religion. Um, but it was a very strict society. As I've said, everything was controlled at a certain level, although more, more privacy was allowed uh, in private. Tim, I'm I'm particularly interested in in the element of the, of of the popular culture and the everyday mm. people, mm. and the way that they're getting their hands on the shunga, the way that that there's a celebrity culture, um, as far as I could ascertain, around both the artists, but sometimes people who appeared in it as well. Um, so and and that this is this is rippling out. So people must have been talking about it they are potentially swapping magazines with each other you know with prints with each other that there's there's I, I I really 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 enjoy the comedy that's in so mm. many of the images with the ha ha ha's floating up you know and and someone looking and peering around the corner and peeping down on top of you know so so it feels like there's a vitality to this art that is is also part of everyday culture and everyday people's lives that potentially we don't see mirrored in the West at the time or in, in Europe at the time. You know, I, I was talking earlier about really a lack of sense of sh sin or shame uh, with sex itself and with images of, of people having sex. And I think the corollary of that, as you've just very um, astutely pointed out, is is a certain lightheartedness, a certain sense of comedy around the, the, you know, the grotesque act of sex. Uh, enjoyment, and, celebration. En, en, enjoyment, celebration, but also all of these little, you know, social um, awkwardnesses. Um, but I think everybody, 
at the time, and if they're careful now, should accept that uh, by and large, Shunga is entertainment. It's also education. If you're a young couple uh, and you're just starting out your married life, or if you're teens and you're dating, there is a lot in Shunga, and it's in the texts as well, and it's in the conversations that you find in the pictures, which is another uh, dimension that you don't tend to get so much uh, in in Europe. Um, in there's, Western there's, porn, yeah, there's, there's not the perform- conversations, are there? There's performative aspects to what they're doing, but there's also educational. Um, so it, there's this great tradition, and I'm sure it's true, and there are examples historically of, of people being given painted shunga or shunga books when they're getting married and starting out on their sexual lives together, you know, as a kind of um, the joy of sex type book. Um, and there was the most incredible cultural collisions. I mentioned the Koreans. There's one, there's one text which comes from 1719. The Koreans only came once a generation. The, the government of Korea sent a diplomatic mission, like an ambassadorial procession of hundreds of people, uh, once a generation. And the guy who was the head of the, essentially the ambassador in, in 1719, he was horrified why Japanese people were pulling Shunga pictures out of their sleeves and showing them to each other, um, they they were having sex. They were having sex with the light on. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and people were being importuned in the street. So, from a Korean high culture, he was you know an aristocrat. From his perspective, it was it was deeply shocking. Then, at the end of the period, and how this Shunga culture and and the pre-modern culture, the urban culture of which it was a part, how this all came unraveled was the very sudden re-engagement, a political decision to re-engage with the outside world. And this happened very suddenly in 1859 when the Japanese, with some pressure from the United States, decided to reopen a small number of um, ports on the periphery as, as international trading ports. And foreigners came to live there, which they'd never been able to do before. And really, really early on in this process, you get a collision of erotic cultures where both sides are extremely shocked <laughs> by what they learn about the sexual mores and the attitudes towards sex of the other side. And there's some wonderful accounts from diaries of American merchants, just ordinary guys who are in business. They're not particularly uh, missionaries or anybody with a high religious uh, zeal. They're invited into what are essentially middle-class Japanese homes, they serve wonderful meals. It's, it all seems very civilized. And then after dinner, as a kind of entertainment for their foreign guest, the, they pull down a box and start showing shunga to what are often these young men who are far away from home. And equally shocking... Sounds like a night after ducky. <laughs> well, equally shocking to the young American merchants is the fact that the wife is present while you're looking at the shunga. And it's not considered embarrassing or shocking for these middle-class Japanese people that we're all looking at these pictures together, which are entertaining. Um, but <laughs> Japan, from this period onwards, was very, very keen to be accepted as uh, uh, imperial power along the lines of the United States and the Western European colonizing nations. And so they were trying as quickly as possible 
to adopt what they saw, thought of as the mores of um, polite Victorian society. Um, so it's beginning really in the 1870s onwards that you start to get these first city ordinances and then increasing legislation against what was regarded as the obscenity of, of traditional um, sex art. Uh, and that process continues and it reaches a high point in the early 20th century where they're burning thousands of examples of wow. sugar uh, and people who are producing it start to be wow. sent, to, sent to jail. Wow. Um, and so for the most of the 20th century, there is this very strong taboo against sugar. Uh, you're, you're not allowed to reproduce it in scholarly books. You're not even allowed to transcribe the texts because they're regarded as wow. obscene. And that really only starts to change uh, in a big way in the a a 1990s. I mean, it, for, for us, it really was, as, as Zed mentioned at the start, it was an absolute highlight on, mm. on our, our whole Princess Project to come mm. along to have, to first of all, to be welcomed in to the museum, then, then to go through this process of going, we can locate something that we can recognise as not the same as us but familiar to us you know, as, as, as members of the queer community, and then to look at the extraordinary skill and beauty of these artefacts um, that in, included these references to, yes, we, we, we can call it male-on-male -male sex. There's, there were certainly, I know there's only limited images of, of, of um, women same-sex women action um, and some oct octopus throwing in there. But, but, and a big, and, the big deal, though. <laughs> and the massive strap-on, yep, yep, the, which is a winner every time. Something for everyone. Something for everyone. But it, it, it's an extraordinary record of eroticism beyond the West with operating in a different framework. And I, I guess just to close, I, I wonder if there's a message in there about how learning about cultural artefacts like this and in particular Shunga can help maybe challenge the trend we're seeing now that is the westernization the global westernization of LGBTIQA plus culture around the world. This idea that we measure other cities on their urban modernity according to how gay friendly they are, how many, how many rainbow flags they have flying, that actually discounts other cultural experiences of queerness for to use a Western term. And actually is is there is 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 looking at uh, uh, um, works like Shunga in person, is this part of this process of deconstructing the West queer culture superiority? I would certainly hope so. And as we three, I think, queer people have responded so strongly to Shunga directly, um, that is proof of the queerness of Shunga. And now, from the world's poshest museum, we've nabbed our very own trans curator. Screw you, workplace diversity. We demand deviancy. It's Zorian and the four Ps. Pamphlets, places, people and pornography. This episode, it's... Places. Zorian, what places are important in London in the queer 18th century? 
Well, one of the first places I think of is the Sodomites Walk, of course, um, which was a prime cruising ground, which is now the south side of Finsbury Square. And this was the last part of, of some open fields in that area. And there were many molly houses that were along the eastern edge of the field that we know about. And um, the fabulous Richter Norton has explored a lot of court records of cross-dressing mollies in this area um, near a location called the Temple of the Muses, which we have some prints of uh, at V&A. And um, one of them was, um, at the time, it was the largest and cheapest bookstore in the world, they claimed there. Um, but it burned down in uh, 1841. But there was uh, lots of Molly House scenes from, from in this area with um, hugging and kissing and tickling one another um, of, of all sorts. And so, yeah, the Sodomites Walk, you can't not uh, go to 18th century London and miss that. Sorry, Ian, why is Foxhall so important to our queer ancestry? Well, it has been a queer place and a very fun place for a very long time. Um, of course, the Pleasure Gardens, um, it wasn't the only Pleasure Gardens in London. We had Ranley Gardens that was over in Chelsea Way as well, and one called um, Bagney Gardens, I think. But Vauxhall, I think, is the one that is the most enduring. And we have so many prints and drawings of it um, to sort of imagine what it looked like or to bring it to life. In fact, we have paintings that were from the supper boxes at the Pleasure Gardens and now in the V&A collection, you can see some of those on display. So they have scenes like a whopping landlady, um, uh, an Islington family going a-walking and stuff. So they're scenes of London life. Um, but there were 50 pictures in these dining areas and people would basically come and do all their promenades. And we have all these amazing little snippets here and there of the kind of um, queer elements of the masquerade and all the drag and all the fun at the balls, basically. Um, and, you know, I think it's been amazing through this whole project to bring that to life or to to bring the Georgian era to life and be standing in exactly the same place where it occurred, I think is a really brilliant way to tap into our gender-bending history and our queer party history. Right on the same spot, I think it makes it really special. Let's talk about the importance of the work Bitten Peach is doing to establish queer spaces for Asian performers and the role that plays in tackling the fetishization of Asian culture, the tokenization, the marginalization, mm. but, but not just in broader culture, in queer culture mm -hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the, well, there's so many things that we wanted to do when we started Up the Bitten Peach. It was, you know, it, in some ways, we just wanted to be able to create a platform, a show, a space where other Asian performers could perform together. Because so often, we would only be like ships in the night passing. Maybe you'd go and once in a while, you might bump into another person. We all knew each other existed, but we'd never be booked together because... Typically, when bookings happen, 
uh, of like more established drag nights and drag shows, it's usually a white person making those decisions. And, you know, they might think about diversity. Diversity is obviously being thought about more, but, you know, two and a half years ago when we first started this up, you know, a tiny bit of diversity was enough. And so you'd rarely get more than one Asian on the lineup. You'd rarely get more than one person of color on a lineup. So we decided we wanted to be able to come together in that way and increase Asian representation by putting on our own shows. But then in the process of doing that, what we wanted to make sure is that, yes, we were making a space to celebrate Asian culture and Asian identities, specifically queer Asian identities, and hopefully pull a queer Asian audience so that they could be there with us celebrating, celebrating our community that so often is just kind of in the shadows. But we also wanted to make sure that all these events were very, very open and welcoming to any anyone, especially, you know, other queer people, other queer people of color, but anyone in general should feel welcome to come into the space as long as they're coming with respect, of course, so that they could see more types, more diversity within what it is to be Asian. Specifically, we wanted to show them queer Asian culture because we don't get a lot of Asian representation in the media, full stop. And if you do, rarely is there any queerness to be seen. And I think there's a wide belief of uh, from outside Asian culture that Asian culture is very homophobic. And of course it has parts of that. And some people in, in of Asian identities are extremely homophobic, but that could be said about any racial identity. So we wanted to show like there is a booming, diverse, queer Asian culture. And we wanted to make sure that we were showing off multiple identities with Asian culture, not just in terms of gender and sexual identity, but also of like actual skin colors, ages, genders. I, I keep saying genders. Really, there was lots of gender. We, we had gender <laughs> on the brain. I've always got gender on the brain. Um, and so we, we've been able to hopefully, and will continue to, get larger and larger platforms where we can show off like Asian talent beyond just kind of the stereotypes that you'd usually see. I mean, so many people in our collective, especially those that work in the burlesque realm, often the requests for Asian performers fits into very kind of old fashioned, outdated ideals of what Asian women or Asian men are. There's a lot of ask to be geishas and things like that in, in burlesque and, um, and, and beyond burlesque, to be honest. I've been asked to be a geisha multiple times. And um, we just wanted to kind of just show that there's so much more to us. <laughs> what, what, who, what performers are really exciting you at the moment and what sort of issues are they dealing with? Are they issues mm. based or is it is that too linear to even mm. think along those lines that, oh, it's Asian and therefore it must be issue based? You know, you know, that's a great question because something that we strive to is like to allow performers to perform whatever they want, whether or not it's specific to their identity and and the, the struggles they feel or just something fun that has nothing to do with with who they are. But we want to cultivate and foster both of those areas. So in our larger shows, um, when we come together, something that we try to do is a mix of both. Mm. And kind of be able to deconstruct some of the stereotypes and assumptions about Asian people and then also have a really fun act that that links it in a way so we can have 
a discussion about the the feminization and the desexualization of Asian men. But then we can but then we can illustrate that with like a very sexy Asian drag king, you know? So like we, we can, we can like talk about this and like subvert it in, in new queer ways as well. Um, and that's what we're always trying to do is find these ways to, to kind of take, take what, what society wants to put on us and be like, actually let us twist and bend this around and then present it to you in a new way. And do you think that the space that you're creating because there's there's many performers at once feeding off each other that that contributes to the creativity and the process itself absolutely i mean the i did not know how wonderful it would be to be a part of like a collective until we started this one which was you know kind of organic in a way we thought of doing it but i didn't know that it was going to be as excitingly collective and sharing as it is because so often performers will have an idea for something and then throw the idea out to the group and see who else resonates with that. And maybe they'll be able to advise them on it or they'll work together on it or someone can, can enlist the help or mentorship of one of the other performers. We have a more like structured mentorship program that we do that we mm. call Peach Fuzz, um, <laughs> which is where newer, fresher performers can kind of, uh, you know, upgrade their level with help from the more established performers, but also just within the collective itself. Um, like in our WhatsApp group, there's always people exchanging stories. And I've got this idea. I'm not sure what kind of costume someone will be like, oh, what about this? I can make it for you. So the the that kind of like hive mind that we have going really is so much more fruitful. And I have apologies for the pun talking about the bitten peach. I'm talking about a fruitful experience, but it's been it's been so um, nourishing and giving. How can we trace back what what ideas can we trace back about this through maybe queer Asian history specifically? Maybe we could start by thinking about the story behind the bitten peach mm. and why you use that name for the collective. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can go way, we're going to go way back if we're, if we're going to talk about that, which I think we should. <laughs> right. um, so the, the story of the Bitten Peach, which ranges from history to legend by this time, because it's so old, it dates back to the Zhou dynasty in China in like 500 BC. So this is a long time ago. And in this, in this kind of legend story, there's this very beautiful man named Mi Zhizha, who um, is kind of renowned for being very stunning. Uh, I like to think of this person as probably by today's standards being like a little bit more gender non-conforming, gender non-binary, but that might be just me projecting. Um, so Mi Zhizha becomes an attendant to a duke, like a aristocratic, upper-class, royal-type duke. Um, and, and the duke takes a fancy to Mi Zhizha because, you know, stunning. So... Uh, there's a few different stories of, of, of kind of this love developing, but the one that kind of really took hold is that one day Mi Zhizha is walking with the Duke through like a beautiful lush garden and there's a peach hanging off of a peach tree and Mi Zhizha takes it down, takes a bite of this peach and then offers the bitten peach to the Duke. Now, because of the class difference and the hierarchy there, that's not acceptable. But because of the beauty and the love that had developed, the Duke did indeed accept the bitten peach. 
And therefore, after that, I guess, I don't know, people must have seen and the gossip must have spread, you know, all those little chat chatter around the town. And it became just kind of this code word for homosexuality. They would say those two, you know, they're into the pleasures of the bitten peach, if you know what I mean. And so... <laughs> Somehow that that term kind of carried on for a very, very long time when it was still taboo to talk about talk about queerness. Obviously, we have different words for it now, but we decided we loved just the kind of the imagery of that peach, especially by today's standards where the peach also represents like the butt. Uh, we were just like, oh, this is too good. This is too good. We've got to be the bitten peach. That makes me wonder how important these kind of queer cultural legends are to you and your Asian identity and your Asian queerness? You know, I think that story, something that I like about that story um, specifically is that it is so old. And it's just nice to remind people that like queerness has been around for as long as people have. I think there's, the you know, by some usually non-queer people's standards. This whole idea is a new phase. Everyone, uh, it, 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 it's just nice to be reaffirmed in the fact that like queerness in Asian culture has existed that long. Oye, oye. This has been another rowdy chapter in the Princess Podcast. Yes, podcast. Our operatic ditties were voiced by Oberon White and written by Dr. Ducky Ben Walters. The music was written and arranged by Jacob Garside. Additional music was composed by Arnold and arranged by David Norman Beard. This podcast was recorded remotely under lockdown and was produced by Simon Levans for Ducky and funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. I'm EJ. You can see images of all the artefacts we've drawn queer history from on Ducky's website at ducky.co.uk. Stay tuned for our next episode of Princess Podcast. Ha 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 ha!